Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. We're back for those Sports Litites keeping score, and I know you haven't been, but I certainly have. Did you call us Luddites, Neil? Wouldn't be the first time I've been called that, and it never stops hurting. The listeners will have to let us know if they're comfortable being known as the Sports Litites, or uh, if they think it's too close, as you say, to Luddites, and it does hurt. It's been about six months. But we're back with season six, a new and a new recording platform that will result in many more shows on a consistent basis. So with that said, it's time to talk about an anniversary, a significant one for Canadian sport and hockey as a whole. 2022 marks the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series, set against the backdrop of the Cold War. Certainly you've heard about it, the eight games in September of 1972, which pitted Canada, consisting of the pros from the NHL, against the Soviets, who, though they weren't billed as such, were definitely pros in their own rights. In fact, the way they trained and conditioned themselves is essentially the model and the precursor for what we see now in North America. And for the North Americans, no, it wasn't like that. Our guest author and journalist today is Scott Morrison, and he writes that the Summit Series was seen as a long-awaited coronation or confirmation that Canada, when icing their best, should win and will win. And how far back that goes, I don't know. But as Nate will explain, this was no longer club teams being sent to the Olympics or amateurs going to the World Championships. And the expectation that Canada should win was solidified, albeit by a very anguished and dramatic series. And that, that expectation continues today. In 72, Canada represented was represented by NHL players at a time when the talent pool was dispersed due to the inception of the WHA. Their players, namely Bobby Hall, one of the greatest at the time, they weren't allowed to play. His brother Dennis, though, still with the Blackhawks, was part of the 35 named to the initial roster. 35, Nate. (laughs) I think this is in an era where a CFL roster is like 32 players. (laughs) (laughs) Some of those players um, left the team before the series ended, which was part of the theater of a squad that was supposed to run roughshod over the Soviets. But as we know, it didn't exactly happen that way. The series was split into two parts, the first four games uh, in Canada and the next four in Moscow, with exhibition games slated in between against the Swedes in Stockholm. Canada left the country with just one win in those four games, two losses and a tie. And the entire country wondering what the hell was going wrong. Their lone margin of error then evaporated in Russia when they lost game five. So if they're going to win this, they would have to take three in a row, which they believed they could at the time and which, as we know, they did. Game eight unfolded into a microcosm of the series, an explosive buildup. All the tension previously brewing just came to a head, and then you know the rest. Paul Henderson scores the winner with 34 seconds left. Foster Hewitt has the call, and Team Canada goes on to be named Team of the Century. A little later, Nate will let us know about a Swedish athlete of the century. In So in time for this jubilee, journalist Scott Morrison released, released 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. That came out on Tuesday, May 3rd, about a week ago, through publisher Simon & Schuster. Scott has gone back and interviewed the players on both sides, as well as the integral characters that were not on the ice, but made the series what it was. Through his research and interviews, Morrison steers the narrative not only through all eight games, but he gives us the origin story, plus new information 
and then concludes by summarizing why the series was so important. The words of those that were there, the fans, the media, and of course, most importantly, the players. The final two quotes are from the tragic character, if you will. And uh, we know now that you could probably say that was Valerie, Valerie Harlamov. But in this case, the tragic character and the hero. So that's Vladislav Tretiak, who allowed the goal. Both teams, he says, won in 1972. The winner was the game of hockey. Paul Henderson says, they, the Soviets, accomplished what they wanted to. They wanted to prove that they could play with the best in the world, and they did that. So there's the legacy. Scott, like previous guests, Al Strachan and Roy McGregor, received the Elmer Ferguson Award from the Hockey Hall of Fame in recognition for his journalistic achievements in covering the sport. He is known for his work on Hockey Night in Canada, Sportsnet, CBC Television and Radio, as well as his print work in the Toronto Sun. Scott twice served as the president of the prestigious Professional Hockey Writers Association. Not long ago, we spoke with Rick Vibe about his book Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and in Life. That was Season 4, Episode 9. Scott was uh, Scott helped Rick Vibe with that. He was the uh, co-author, as we should say. Um and he, he, he's written many books since his career began in 1979. Another book he references a lot in this current book we're going to talk about today is uh, Serge Savard's great book, Forever Canadien. That was also on Sports Lit, Season 4, Episode 12. So just letting you know where you can go back and listen to some of the uh, source material here. So before we talk about the narrative Scott weaves, it's time to go over to Nate to weave his own context after reading this book. Hmm, yes, uh, the thought bubble after reading this is that the Summit Series, you know, the changes in hockey or, you know, discuss this book. But I really think it changed how Canadians watch sports forever and how they relate to it. It's really hard not to picture incredible scenes of, you know, 3,000 raucous Canadians who followed the original Team Canada to Moscow with the ice teca in Edmonton and the crowds in Hamilton and Toronto during our men's soccer team's World Cup qualifying campaign. I don't think that's just a facile comparison. Different sports, um, you know, much different countries, but it feels like the root of Canadians being like, we're with you no matter what, and we're going to sit out in the cold and snow, snow and cheer you on. That all started with people flying over over to Moscow and, and drowning out, you know, 8,000 Soviets Anyways, it does tie together to me, you know, those because it's about nation nation building and newcomers realizing, you know, what Canada can be and and getting be, and getting be, behind the cause and hopefully all that fits in and stays on side with uh, reconciliation. Although that, you know, is probably a, <clears throat> a tangent for another day from this treaty land inhabitant. Anyway, Scott in this book does do a good job of explaining how this all, you know, came to pass in 1972. The Men of influence in Canadian hockey in the 1960s, they saw the flag-waving fervor in soccer's World Cup and thought, eh, there might be some uh, profit to be had if we import this to Canada's most popular sport. So, But it took till 1972 for the timing, the tide, and I guess the satellite tech to be in place for the launch. launch. And in doing so, it invited Canadians to you know, thump their chests and be unafraid about trying to be world-class at, at an international sport. A lot of other things, of course, also had to happen around that time a half century ago to make the connection between the 72 Summit Series and a World Cup qualifying campaign in 2022 seem valid. 
At that time, there was a government led by another forward-thinking Prime Minister Trudeau that created multi a multiculturalism policy that recognized the strength and diversity. That certainly affected a change in our demographics that led to broadening our sports skill set. South of the border, 1972 was also the year when Title IX in the United States created greater opportunity for girls and women to play sports. So that meant there would someday be, you know, college soccer programs that would look into Canada for talent and recruit Christine Sinclair or Ashley Lawrence or Kadisha Buchanan. And of course, their play with our, our women's national team would raise the bar for Canadian soccer to create a team that would be worthy of the talents of Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David. So there it goes from Henderson stick headed forward by Sinclair and finished off by Laren. Uh, quite a finish. Uh, oh, I'm not done yet, Neil. Oh, you mean, you know, you're, you're doing a soccer announcer thing. Well done. <laughs> well done. Well done by Acharya. It meant a lot to people. Uh, one story that's always stuck with me and this, you know, I, I don't even know if I've ever asked both of my parents where they were in 72. They were 20 years old in 1972. It was a story that was once related to me by a friend that Neil knows, the legendary Chris Thomas. Legend. Uh, yeah, Chris Chris was a, worked at the Simcoe Reformer, uh, small, you know, small uh, community-focused newspaper for 35 years. The day of game eight in September, September 28, 1972, Chris is a 25-year-old reporter with The Reformer, which is in Southwest Ontario Tobacco Growing Company. Country, pardon me. He's covering a meeting where he's all your farmers are trying to figure out how much they're going to get, you know, paid for their for their crops that year. And many of the farmers are Hungarian immigrants who had left their homeland after the 1956 Hungarian uprising was crushed, you know, by the Soviet Union. Canada after that took in 37,500 refugees from Hungary, about 19% of the total number of people who had to leave the country. And obviously, you know, hockey wasn't their primary sport of interest, but they were following the game. And these men who might not have been hockey fans before that day, when Henderson scored and the clock ran out, they cried. They knew what it meant that Canada had taken down the Russian bear. And sports wise, you know, I think, you know, over the time we've broadened. Now, in 1972, you could not imagine Canada playing in the World Cup with Brazil and Germany and England. Uh, even today, like, you know, my brother was in London last week, Neil, and a taxi driver didn't believe him when my, Sean told him, hey, yeah, Canada's going to be in the World Cup. The guy was like, no way. Sean's like, you know, getting out his, you know, phone and showing him like the CONCACAF table with Canada at the top of it. <laughs> And in 1972, the Olympics and Paralympics are much, much smaller, especially for sportswomen who today earn most of Canada's medals on that global athletic stage. So our our focus as a country, you know, we had, you know, the CFL as one of our sports, but we only had one Major League Baseball team at the time. We didn't have the NBA. We were pretty much focused on an NHL whose player pool was what, like 96 or 97 percent Canadian? But the wheels had probably been in motion for the Summit Series to happen for about 20 years. And Scott alludes to this a few times in our, in our episode. What it, the way it sort of went was well past the middle of the 20th century, Canada would win the annual International Ice Hockey Federation World Championship just by sending over a senior amateur team. Usually it was the team that had won the Allen Cup, the national senior title the year before. At this time, the Soviet Union self-isolated 
in the parlance of uh, right now from international sport. It did not send athletes to the Olympics for the first few decades after the Russian Revolution. And their winter ball and stick team sport was bandy, which is a cool sport if you want to look it up on Google. But it's not really played too much outside of, I think, Russia and Northern Europe. But one upshot, and maybe one of the few of a centrally planned economy, is if the state decides we're going to go out and kick ass in a sport, they can order it and people will have to fall in line. After the Second World War, the Soviet Union decided it was gonna do that hockey. And of course it happened to be that hockey was an Olympic sport and banding was not. And it also set its mind on becoming dominant at the Olympics. And around the same time, you know, Canada, the you know number one and only really in hockey, it's got some beef with the International Olympic Committee and the International Ice Hockey Federation, the aforementioned IIHF. Canada feels like it's paying the freight for international hockey and the IIHF is getting the profit because the national team that they send over to Europe for the Worlds often has to play 30 or 40 games touring before the World Championship. Canada feels like it should be getting a little more of that. There's also some differing views about who should be playing for their countries. Should it be professionals? Should it be amateurs? Who, who, What professionals get banned? How should that all work? And it's still compli a complicated picture to this day. It seems like every time an Olympic cycle comes around, especially with the NHL involved, it's you know, <laughs> how's this going to work out? Is it going to be under 23? Is it going to, you know, who are we sending? Yes, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, right? Yeah. So in 1952, exactly 20 years before the Summit Series, the Edmonton Mercuries bring Canada its sixth Olympic hockey gold medal in seven tries. At that time, the Olympics also stand in as the world championship every four years. And it's also Canada's 15th world championship in 19 competitions. By the way, trivia question, who was the coach of the first Canadian team that it did not bring home gold for the Worlds? You guessed it, Harold Ballard, who also never built that arena he promised to build <laughs> in my hometown of Bath, Ontario, either after spending some time in the area in the early 1970s. Also, in that same year of 1952, the USSR went to the Summer Olympics for the first time. They did okay for a first try. They were second in overall medals after the United States of America. And the next spring, 1953, because of the financial you know, dispute with the IIHF, Canada boycotts the Ice Hockey World Championship. And there had been talk that the Soviet Union was going to send a team for the first time, and they're like, if Canada's not coming, we're not coming either. <laughs> Probably the worst Russian accent. Is that ever. your Ivan Drago? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and yeah, worst Russian accent ever. And of course, the guy who played Ivan Drago was not Russian. So the next year, 1954, Canada comes back, repped by the East York Lindhurst from the Toronto Ice Hockey League. And it's presumed Canada will get back on top. After all, it's a team from Toronto. And a team with, from Toronto with plenty of hype behind it never falls on their faces in a high-pressure situation. But the Soviets come, and they do okay for a first try. They win the gold medal on the margin of beating the East York Lindhurst 7-2 in the final game of the tournament. And you can sort of see that the twin arcs have been bent. You've got East and West, two different worlds. Now, Canada would still win the Worlds a few more times by sending a senior team. But the Soviets have now taken over the top of the pedestal in international hockey. And the IIHF, I don't think they mind that having Canada sort of held in check. And this impasse probably sets hockey back. To give one example, I'll take a bit of a John Boyce ripoff detour to mention 
a Bo Jackson of Sweden. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sit back for this one. Okay, give us a lesson, Nate. Okay. Sven Kumba was a high-scoring <laughs> forward for your Gordons in both hockey and soccer in Sweden in the 1950s. He helped your Gordons become champions of Sweden in both sports. And in 1957, he won top forward honors when Sweden won the World Hockey Championship on Soviet ice in Moscow. So I guess he was also kind of the Paul Henderson of Sweden. In later life, he also popularized golf in Sweden, and he designed the first golf course in Moscow. So he's kind of what also like what the Jack Nicholas of Sweden too. In 1999, sports fans in Sweden chose Sven Tumba, not Hall of Famers such as Borja Salming, Peter Forsberg, and Matt Sundin as their hockey player of the century. A few years later, he was also named the most influential person in the history of golf in Sweden at a time when Annika Sorenstam was dominating the LPGA and even getting invites to play in PGA events. In that year, 57, Sven Tumba got an NHL tryout. He ended up turning it down because signing in the NHL would have made him ineligible to rep Sweden. For some reason, he could get paid for his hockey playing in Sweden, but according to the IHF, he couldn't get paid to do it in North America and still play in the world championship. hockey. Nate, uh, I'm going to let them, uh, let the listeners go to Google translate for that one. Yeah, good. Cause that's where I got it from. <laughs> You're not help Duolingo only help gets you so far, right? <laughs> so Scott Morrison details in the book. And in this episode, this kind of goes on for a while, but by the seventies, you know, if there's, some olive branches are being extended. There's a willingness to share some cups of tea figuratively and work this out. You know, Canada is frustrated because, and is not playing in the Olympics and the world championships. The Soviet Union might be getting a little bored. They're 18 for 18 at making the medal podium in the world championship. And it turns out they're only halfway through a Carlton Ravens-like run of basically sucking the life out of the tournament. There would not be a world championship hockey medal podium without the USSR until 1992. Hmm, and uh, might that be because the state had recently dissolved? Or so the Germans would have us believe. So that establishes the motive. The Soviets are out of rivals to conquer, and Canada's certitude about being the best in hockey which has kind of existed in this closed loop, they're willing to put it on the line here and make a point. Up until then, everything's kind of in, in this little uh, bubble, right? Where they don't know how good the rest of the world is because it's never been displayed. The NHL at the, this time has just expanded to 16 teams, half of its current size. The World Hockey Association, which Neil mentioned, and which Scott references a few times in her talk, it's just organized. But who knows what's where it's going to go? Is it going to fold in a trice like other alternative leagues have? Or will it last long enough to become a successful disruptor? And again, the NHL player pool, as I said, is about 97% Canadian. NHL teams barely have to look anywhere else to find talent. Only 12 Americans had appeared in a game the previous season. The only Scandinavian in the NHL is a Finnish-born Swede, Juha Vidig, who plays forward for the Los Angeles Kings. And even he had moved to Canada by his early teens to play for the Brandon Wheat Kings junior team. And uh, as far as Southern California sports fans who listen to LA Kings radio broadcasts know, his name isn't even 
Yuhav Veeding. The Kings broadcasters aren't allowed to say his name the way it's supposed to be said. They're under orders from their employer to call him, get this, Whitey Whiting, even though Swedes seldom use the letter W. <laughs> Jack Kent Cook, huh? Yeah, Jack Kent Cook had some idea. He, he was a very hands-on guy. I think he, at one point, I remember hearing a story that he once told Bob Miller that he wanted them to work in like spot. I'm surprised this actually isn't happening on broadcast now. He, he was told to say things like, Marcel Dion is moving into a high gear like a Toyota. <laughs> I mean, and while a Toyota is a compact car and Marcel Dion was a kind of a compact guy at five foot seven, that's a little much. <laughs> the little beaver, the little beaver, Marcel Dion. And yes, we should shout out Bob Miller, the uh, longtime LA Kings play-by-play commentator. Great voice. Yeah, uh, yeah, excellent, excellent play-by-play guy. Anyways, as they say in anything, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. Canada was willing to go outside of that and play the Soviet Union. They just had no idea how far they were going to be going outside of it by actually agreeing to play a best-on-best hockey competition where they would journey well outside of North America. And that, by the way, is something that's rarely happened since at the top level of hockey. There's only been three times where Canada's had to send their, basically their all-star men's hockey team outside of outside of North America. The Olympic men's hockey tournaments that had the NHL players in 98, 2006, and 2014. Canada only won gold in one of those three tournaments, and it missed the medal podium in the other two. But when the Olympic tournament with the NHLers was in North America in 2002 in Salt Lake City and 2010 in Vancouver it did pull off the gold medal. So yeah, all the, you know, the popular version of what went on that Canada really, you know, was had no idea what they were getting themselves into against the Soviet Union and, you know, going over there, none of that is hyperbole. Uh, the players got exposed to the politics right away as, as Scott Morrison illustrates in his narrative and they, you know, they didn't have, you know, anyone to really isolate them from that. They internalized all that. There was unbearably high pressure, you know, very heavy stuff. I still recall how Phil Esposito, you know, Canada's leading scorer and I guess really emotional leader in that series, he wrote his autobiography that he never got to the same level again as a player after the 72 Summit Series. And yet he still had scoring titles and trips to the Stanley Cup finals ahead of him in over the remainder of his career. But, and ultimately this uh, series, it was kind of a shock event that really fast-tracked the changes that created a more global sport. Uh, Neil, you and I, we're not there in 72. We're a little younger than that. But it, Scott Morrison has done a, I think, solid job making readers feel like they were. Thank you, Nate. And before we move on uh, to speak with Scott Morrison, I want to let our listeners know that uh, his Twitter handle is at smorrisonmedia. Our Twitter handle is at sportslitpod, and we're also on Instagram. And as always, there's a link to buy this book and any of the others we've covered over the past six seasons on our website at www.sportslit.ca. All right, coming up, Scott Morrison. Okay, welcome back to Sports Lit. Nate, uh, we are very pleased today to be joined by Scott Morrison, who is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the fourth member, of, uh, fourth media member of the Hockey Hall of Fame we've had on our show. Yeah, right you are, Neil. Uh, Brian McFarlane joined us uh, 
for our series season finale last last year and we've had Roy McGregor and Al Strachan back in 2020 so we're, we have four we're up to a penalty kill now and soon, we'll, <laughs> soon enough we'll have a power a power play unit there we go thanks for joining us uh Scott um of course we're, we 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 mentioned off the top in our intro that you didn't hear that you're here to talk about uh the summit series book that you that you just released uh on Tuesday um so Nate uh why don't you start us off with a couple questions of course uh Scott uh I was interested in the, the history of how this all came together. How long was talk of a summit series in the hopper, so to speak, both in hockey and maybe, maybe in the high level, uh, you know, political sphere. Well, certainly from the, the hockey perspective, I, you know, back in the day, I think the idea probably got kicked around at times, but never too seriously because of the politics of the world and, and everything else. And, at the time, uh, we were only able to send our best amateur players to international competition, like the Worlds or the Olympics, and we weren't winning. We didn't win from the 60s on, it seemed, and uh, and there was a great frustration because of that, and there was a push to try and allow us to have some professionals play, and for a brief period, we were allowed to put a handful of players in, but then uh, the IOC and the IHF, they, they said they wanted no part of that. And then we left the international scene for a couple of years leading up to ultimately the 72 series. And it's interesting on the flip side, the, the Soviets, you know, they were dominating internationally and uh, they kind of floated the idea in, in a Moscow paper one day about maybe it's time that they took on the best and, the, you know, the so-called best, the pros from the other side of the pond and it was uh, uh, someone working in the Canadian consulate in, in Moscow had noticed this in the paper and he alerted the authorities back home that you know when they do things like that they're doing it for a reason they're not floating an idea as just a far-fetched thing that they want something to happen and so all of a sudden from a political standpoint it started to have a little momentum and you know Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister in the day and one of his election promises was to try and fix our problem with amateur hockey and not winning internationally and hockey Canada was born out of all of that talk at the time so there was a lot of different forces and uh, and pushes at, at play at the time and uh, and thankfully uh, it all came together and what else was going on in Canada in I guess the late 60s and early 70s that might have made it created some political capital for a government to want to have bring something like this about yeah, I mean, we had 67 was the centennial for the country, obviously, and the expo, and there was a, a great high then, and there was a lot of hope and, next, you know, that a lot of promise and people feeling good about themselves. And then when the 70s rolled around, we had the FLQ October crisis in, uh, in Quebec and the War Measures Act being invoked. And, you know, it felt like the country was divided in many ways. Quebec had all those political issues you know, the West seemed to be distant and uh, uh, there's just a lot of, it was a time of protest and unrest in, in our country. And, you know, one of the things Trudeau thought uh, at the time was that to have a series uh, like that, you know, especially thinking that Canada was going to uh, really flex its muscle, uh, would be good for the country, it would take their minds off other things and, and have a, and almost create a feel good moment. Well, it did. Uh, but just not quite in the way anybody had envisioned when it was yeah. set out. So it's a real life drama. And 
if we're looking at this as a real life drama, which it was, what role does Ken Dryden play in shaping how we've seen the Summit series over the last 50 years since it happened, given he is truly unique at, at the time as, as I would say, probably the lone academic, <laughs> I, I don't know, on either team, but at least on Team Canada. Well, Peter Mavish certainly said that, and he said some of the things that were going on were so deep that not even Ken could figure them out. <laughs> so, um, so your question is, how has Ken kept this story alive, the narrative alive? Or? Well, how has he how has he shaped it in a, in a unique way that's allowed us to uh, understand it on a on a different level, um, given who he is and how he how he tells the story. Well, he's a powerful voice, and yes, he is an academic, a very smart man, a great man, a nice man, and he was a tremendous goaltender. And as as time has marched on, as you know, I mean, he's been in politics, he's been in management and hockey, but he's always been a strong voice for the game. And, uh, you know, his books have all been powerful and telling and take people to places that they wouldn't normally get. And so he's been a guy who's been able to put the series into perspective and, and understand and explain how it's impacted the game and maybe even our people over the over those 50 years. I uh, I love that quote at the end where he where which you put in where he just basically talks about hey listen I'm not a flag waver I'm you know I'm not a patriot per se uh, but I sang Oh Canada in the locker room I believe or in the dressing room after after that game eight and that tells you just how that series turned so dramatically you know especially after that first game the shocking seven three loss in Montreal that you know every virtually everybody went into this thinking, as I say, that it was it was going to be a romp. It was going to be a, a friendly series, you know, four games here, four games there, and Canada would win comfortably. And then all of a sudden that didn't happen. And then because of the, the, the mood of the day and the world and the politics of the day and the world, all of that drama crept into it, that this was now not just having to win this series for the pride of uh, being saying you're the best team, and the best players, but it was the pride of saying you were the best country. And that was a lot of pressure and a lot of emotion. And to the point that, you know, guys were doing things over there as Phil Esposito and Ron Ellis said, <laughs> they were doing things that they would never have dreamt of doing in an NHL game, but they had to do it because you had to win. And even guys like Ken, who, you know, a, a deeper perspective on things than many, even he got caught up to that certain degree in just how it, it went far beyond just being uh, a bragging rights for a hockey series, but bragging rights for a country. So, and, sorry, yeah, go, go ahead, Dean. Go ahead, Neil. Actually, no, no, if you had a question, please feel free. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, how do you how do you describe what it was like as a as an observer? I mean, you're, I think you were in high school at the time to to be in that sort of you know Cold War dynamic because I always find that that period of history hard to explain to anyone who who wasn't old enough uh, who isn't old enough to remember remember when there was a soviet union yeah i mean it, i say in the book that it, the world was a different uh place back then and and it and it, it was but then you see what's happening with russia and ukraine now and it doesn't feel that much different from that perspective sadly um but yeah it was it was different from the that the Cold War was going on. It was it was West versus East. It was capitalism versus communism, um, and ultimately us versus them. And we didn't know a lot about the Soviets back then because 
you didn't have the World Wide Web and obviously there was no social media and all that sort of thing. And you didn't have the news agencies on 24 hours a day. And, and, and so they were, they were this black and white scary image that we would see on the news at night doing what we thought were horrible things and threatening the world. And they were this, this, this it was the evil empire. And the series in many ways became, in our minds, it was good versus evil. So we didn't know much about them, but we just knew we didn't like them and we were we were afraid of them and afraid for good reason from a political standpoint. So right. that was a bit of the undercurrent that was uh, going on at the time. And, and guys did get caught up in that feeling. And I think us as fans felt it, but they felt it as players that they were fighting for their country in that series. They were fighting to win as hockey players, but they were fighting for, uh, for to make a bigger statement. It's it's interesting. I think both myself and Nate, given our age, too, kind of can remember the tail end of it. I remember the mystery of the Russians at Rendezvous '87 or the Canada Cup. Um, I'm sure Nate can attest to that. It was you know they'd have instead of the C, they'd have the K on their jersey, and you, you wouldn't see them until they you know that you know, one weekend or that one tournament. Um, so certainly a mystery. Absolutely. Um, so you had written about this series before, is this correct? Uh, about 30 years ago. Is that right, Scott? Yeah, it was leading up to the 20th anniversary. The book was uh, the days Canada stood still. Right. And, and so uh, but I, I, uh, forgive me, I have not read that book, but I did read this one. One of the, as we always say on every show, uh, the rule of our podcast is you have to read every book we uh we talk about so um i did read this one and i wanted to know what was uh was there any new information uncovered in this book and was that um was there a goal on on uncovering anything new uh for example uh, i didn't know uh about the bobby Orr impact um you know calling phil esposito out <laughs> getting him out of the uh the hockey camp i believe in sault st marie or uh again you can correct me if i'm wrong i think he he was going to potentially dress for game eight is that correct well, yeah, I mean, the, there are new stories, um, you know, the background of how it came together. There's there's more information there, uh, you know, how the team was assembled, um, you know, a lot of the more stories, uh, the players a lot more forthcoming later on in life now, I suppose, about what was going on behind the scenes, what the, the true emotions were like in moments, you know, Phil talked about uh, a heart issue that he had after the fifth game and having to Yes. quietly go get examined and uh and then you know declared that he had a a bigger heart than most and you know, <laughs> we certainly saw that on the ice over those final games so yeah there were lots of different stories and even yeah bobby's involvement to to uh, uh basically convince phil that he should be a part of it because he couldn't so um and i think it there's a different perspective that the players have now is you know we all have different views on things and different, uh, as I say, perspectives as we get older and uh, you have more time to reflect. And uh, I, I think you see the players a little more introspective in that regard. I hope you don't mind if I switch gears to the business of writing because this this podcast is sports lit and it's it's about yeah. uh, sports books. And I want to ask you, because of you, you know, you've written two books on the same subject 30 years apart, how has the uh, the business of writing changed? Is the value of I, I mean I think it, it was a Brian McFarlane book, Nate, where we you know he talked about you know the advances back in the day and you know how much different it was and, and the value I, I think has changed. Um, it looks as though it's changed on 
you know, the value of the printed word. Have you noticed that uh, as an as a writer? Um, are, are do books have the same value in the in the mind of a publishing house uh, as they did thirty years ago when you wrote this book uh, the first time? Uh, yeah, I, I for me economically, I I, I, assume, I can't remember what I would have got paid back then, but it wouldn't have been uh, any, anywhere near I think what I would got received for this book. Mm. I think the I think the industry's evolved. I guess in some ways it's streamlined because. Uh, various publishing houses have come together and in some ways it's grown because you've got you know the audio books and kindle and 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 all of that as well so um yeah i mean i think the industry is 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 still very keen on uh, on wanting to uh you know continue to get books out and get them in the, the hands of people one way or another you're up nate indeed and, and one thing that I really enjoyed about about the your narrative, Scott, was when you talked about the fans who all went over to Moscow and you know you know were raucous and became that extra player. To what extent did that series maybe change the way people related to sports in in Canada and the way they watched sports? Well, certainly in that series, when excuse me, when the team left Canada. Uh, the fan base was all angry with that team and, uh, and and very disappointed and felt like they'd been let down by them. And then Phil gave his, his famous speech after the game in Vancouver. And I think it sort of smartened people up to realize that, you know, okay, you can be disappointed in your team, uh, but he explained that we are doing our best. Uh, we didn't come in as prepared as we should have been mentally and physically. Uh, we were sold a bit of a goods, a bill of goods on how how good or bad the opposition was, and they are good. So let's accept that and move on here, and we'll do our best to try and win this thing. And I think the people listened to them, and they understood it. And then when they got to, to Moscow and they, they blew the lead in that fifth game, uh, and obviously everybody's devastated. Now they're in a must-run must the table to win the series, which seemed like it was impossible at the time. But as they left the ice after that game, thoroughly dejected, the 3,000 fans stood. They gave them a standing ovation and cheered. And that resonated with the players. And to this day, they talk about how important that was to their psyche and their mindset at that point. And so that was just kind of a, a really kind of an interesting twist to the, to the whole story of how fans went from great expectations to great disappointment to, to great support and the impact that it had excuse me on the players um as far as changing how we watch the game i just think it's you know to this day uh, i was saying in another interview is that it just reinforced how how much pride we take in our country and in when our players have that crest that that you know the maple leaf on the front the not the toronto maple leaf but the other maple leaf on the front of their sweaters and just how important that is to us. And I, you know, I think of something like the World Juniors, where we typically do very well and we love to do well. And we get staggering television numbers and we fill the arenas in Canada when they play. And then when it's all over and we're hopefully satisfied with their gold medal, uh, you got people who wouldn't walk walk across the street to watch a junior game. <laughs> and and where do all these people go? So in some ways, uh, I guess that series started off a, a, a 
reinforce the nationalistic feeling that is is carried on for years that when we see that the the red and white and the maple leaf that uh, we pay attention you know you answered my next my next question which was going to be did this tournament um set the expectation that canada should win all the time um so i think i think you answered that it, it's interesting because um well, I got two questions here. I was just so, going to say, Neil, I, I, I don't think, or was that Nate? Sorry. I don't, I, I don't think we expect, we want to win every time. We do expect to win. But I think we maybe changed a bit of the mindset that when it doesn't happen, we're not quite as shocked as mm. we were for much of that series because we didn't know any better. But, and, you know, because you think of the Canada Cups that, you know, they got slapped in the 80 or the 81 Canada mm -hmm. Cup. And, you know, it was disappointing and shocking because of the score. But by then we had an under understanding that, yeah, okay, they can play. So they're pretty good. And if we do lose to them in a, in a game or a series, uh, yeah, it's okay to be disappointed, but uh, don't be surprised. So, so let's travel back to the bill of goods uh, because it, it is very interesting um, in that, um, you know, there were scouts that went over, which you write about, that said, hey, these guys, uh, you know, they don't mess around. They're they're pretty good. But um, how did the media aid in in, in selling Canadian fans uh, the bill of goods that we were going to roll over the, uh, the Soviets in this series? Well, I think, I mean, the scouts went over and they saw what they saw and they didn't scout the way scouts would normally do it and they only saw them in a couple of for a couple of days and a couple of staged practices really and they didn't know what they were seeing um so that was their report was what it was you have to remember that back then um you know we didn't have the exposure to the soviets via television that we would have today for instance like uh, the world championships weren't always televised or those games wouldn't have been available on TV. We might have seen them every four years at the Olympics. So we knew they were winning all the time. Our amateur teams told us that they were really good. Uh, but we always thought, well, our amateurs are close. So if our pros play them, how can it be close? I mean, we knew how good all our guys were. And I mean, the media, a lot of the media bought into that. Some weren't didn't uh, and there were a few others from the hockey world like the late Billy Harris and Brian Conacher who had played and coached over there who were you know cautionary notes about what might happen but we didn't know a lot other than our guys were really really good and what we knew of them is there's no way they could measure up and so that was the the word that went around and our players didn't know any better and you know they didn't see video of the Soviets to prepare and all that sort of stuff that didn't exist. And so the, they were a mystery as a team. And, uh, and uh, we overhyped it from a Canadian perspective and the players, as I mentioned, you know, in training camp, uh, they weren't physically or mentally engaged to the degree they should have been or needed to be and, uh, you know, paid for it. I, sorry, go ahead, Nate. Yeah. And, and that was kind of uh I guess how much of a wake-up call was it to the way uh, a hockey players in North America approach the sport? Like, because this is all happening when the when the in hockey industry is you know rapidly being modernized from the old original six era to to the mo to the modern era, I suppose. 
Well, you have to keep in mind in in you know seventy two uh, in that time that you know NHLers didn't work out the way they would today in the off season, uh, just because in many cases you didn't have access to ice. A lot of weren't arenas that kept ice year round, or very few of them. A lot of these guys had jobs where they worked for companies in promotional ways. A lot of them worked on family farms because they came from smaller communities. A lot of them ran hockey schools. I mean, they were very popular in the day with the NHL players being a part of that. And they did all this because they needed to make some extra money in many cases. And it was after 72 that some of the finances of the game changed because of the arrival of the of the WHA. But uh, so, yeah, so the mindset wasn't that they were lazy necessarily. It was just that they didn't have access. and uh, it's just not how you did it. And they had long, hard training camps in September and they would play 10 or 12 exhibition games and to play themselves into shape. On the flip side, the Soviets, the so-called amateurs, as they called themselves, were really professionals in their own right. Uh, the majority belonged to the, to the Red Army, to the Army, and, uh, but their deployment was to the hockey rink and they trained year-round and they played each other year-round and played and prepared for their international tournaments because I guess it's still the mindset to some degree exists today. But you know, uh, the, uh, the huge mindset back then was if you could put, especially in the communist countries, and for us too, if you could put a an athlete or a team on a podium and put a gold medal around their uh, their neck, that was part of the propaganda machine to tell the world that your way of life, your system, your politics was, we're better than you. And so that's why the Soviets really dedicated themselves to wanting to be uh, a world power in hockey. You know, it, it, it's interesting because there are certain um, interviews, obviously a lot of interviews you conducted, and then there are some, uh, some books that you, you went back on. And one of the books, uh, and, and used in, in uh, you know, your narrative, and one of the books was Forever Canadian. Uh, by Sir Savard, um, and we had him on the podcast. And so we, I'm just, you know, building on what you're saying. I thought this was a really interesting quote. Maybe we can, you know, you you may have responded to this already, but maybe we can get you to respond to it. Which is, um, until then, we thought the Soviets were very good, but we under underestimated their actual strength. We were asleep at the switch. That series was a defining moment in the evolution of our game. It was a wake up call our training methods improved. And then he says, Scotty Bowman, for example, drew some important lessons. So um, the, you know, what people will often say, you know, this series changed the game, but is that kind of exactly how it changed the game? Yeah, I think it changed it in, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in many ways that it broke down some uh, barriers and walls uh, between, you know, countries and that there was a, a better appreciation for how, the other guy could play and that there is a different way to play. Um, and then of course it opened up for Canada cups and not just with Canada and the Soviets, uh, but with, you know, the Czechs, the Swedes, the Finns, the Americans. So the international game at the elite level with all the best players, not just the best amateurs uh, that started to grow. And then with the change of politics, uh, I guess in the late 80s with the Iron Curtain coming down and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, uh, players from uh, the communist countries didn't have to defect to get to the North America. All of a sudden they were allowed to go and could sign with teams. And, you know, it evolved to a point where, as Phil mentions in the book, 
you know, we've got players from all these countries, but we don't think of them anymore as a Russian or a Czech or a Swede. We just think of them as really good players who want to do the same thing as us. And that's win a Stanley Cup or win a championship. And then, as I say, on the ice, uh, we learn from things that they did in terms of their style of play. And they learned uh, from aspects of our game, too, of how, you know, they didn't adjust as much in game in games we did. And the players noticed that. And, you know, they did things, you know, we call it puck possession. Now they didn't call it that back then, but that was important as a Soviet game. And that was something we learned so much from each other. And we learned so much about training and nutrition and psychology and all the off ice type things. And then again, back onto the ice about, you know, how hard teams practice and different drills and, and fitness and, and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, the, it, it did change the game forever. And a lot of things might have happened in time on their own, but that was certainly a catalyst and probably made it happen sooner than it might have. Back to the um, the expectation and kind of the standard we have in Canadian hockey. Um, you know, I, I, I worked uh, closely with Scott Russell during the Olympics, during the Beijing 2022 Olympics, and he wrote a, a really good essay um, called Canada's Curling Burden. Um, you know, the, the, basically, the, you know, the expectation to win, talking about that. And, and with curling, it's, it's been played down. You know, I mean, the international game has caught up. So what I wanted to ask you is, is there a danger in us ever losing that expectation with hockey? Like, do you, I mean, should we always expect to win? Yes, of course. But is there a danger in losing that expectation, I guess? Um, yeah, I think just given that we still have the mentality that hockey is our game, uh, but we've understanding now that other countries and other players from other countries can be really good too. And we accept that. Um, we don't mind it if a Czech or a Swede or whatever is challenging for the scoring lead and it's not a Canadian. That doesn't seem to, to bother as, as much as it did because as long as they're playing for your team, then you're usually happy. Mm-hmm. So there's there's been a, a, an adjustment of our thinking in that regard. But again, when it comes internationally, I think it's 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 win or else. It's win and winning is everything. But I, but I don't think it stings maybe as bad because we do realize that, yeah, the rest of the world has become really good at, at the game as well. Mm. Well, it definitely stings for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it um, always stings, but, you know, they, I think yeah. it, it, it maybe doesn't linger as long because right. you, you realize that those guys are good. And then the way it is now, <clears throat> certainly, God, it's even in junior, a lot of the, the players you see on the – and the European teams, are, they play in the Canadian Major Junior League. So it's like when the series is over, the Olympics is over, the Worlds are over, whatever, everybody goes back to their club team, and some of them are playing for you as it is, as a fan. And, and Scott, how much is the story of this team also a story maybe about athletes developing agency and speaking up for themselves, uh, thinking here of how the players had to negotiate to be able to have their spouses come with them when they went to Europe and then on to Moscow for the second leg of the series. Yeah, well, that was the, more the, you know, hijinks and gamesmanship of the Soviets. And I don't think it was the team pulling that off, but more from a political standpoint, because as we talked about the bragging rights on so many levels. And so it was just trying to get in the heads of the Canadians and have a create another distraction oh, okay. 
and all of that uh, by saying, wow, this can't happen, that can't happen. And even when they got there, every, bu- every time they got on a bus, it would be half an hour late of showing up, a half an hour late leaving. You know, there's just all sorts of mind games going on. And and that was just another one of them. And uh, in many ways, it backfired because it, it brought that team together uh, even more because they bonded in Sweden anyway. And then when they got that news, it was, you know, they they talked amongst themselves and said, you know, the wives can't come and they can't stay with us. What are we going to do? And they all said, we're going home. We're not finishing. This is a joke. We agreed to certain things and they have to happen. And it was Brad Park who told me, he said, you know, we, we had a vote and it was unanimous. And he said, that's the first time that that team was unanimous about anything. Because you, forget, you think back is, you know, they you had players coming from 10 different teams, heated rivalries. And back in those days, unlike today to a certain degree, is players didn't fraternize with each other in the offseason. They hated each other. They didn't want to see each other. And so it took a, it took time for that group to come together. And, you know, that was a moment that helped them come together even more. And then, as I say, as the, the mindset for them is it stopped being just a, a hockey series. They started, they realized they were playing for that Maple Leaf on the, on the front of the jersey and the, the dynamic of all of it had become so much deeper and intense. And, and just to circle back for, for the benefit of you know, our, our listeners, what's the, what were the events in Sweden that caused this team to you know, galvanize as it did? Well, they realized when they, after the fourth game, when they left Vancouver, they flew back to Toronto and some to Montreal, and they had a day or two before they flew across to Sweden for the couple of exhibition games, and they spent a week there. But they realized that the country, had, from a support standpoint, had basically abandoned them, and their mindset was, like, we can't wait to get out of Dodge we're in this thing together because nobody else is with us. Like our families hate us, our friends hate us. You know, the country is is mad at us. And so when they got there, and because they've been from those various different teams, even though they were together in training camp, they would go off in pockets with your teammates. And, and after games across the, the games in Canada would be the similar sort of thing. Well, all of a sudden they were all locked together in Sweden. And they had to spend time together and they got to know each other and they got into battles in the games over there that were ugly. And they got criticized even by the, the Canadian government representatives there. And that was made them angry. And then, so it was at that, there's all those sorts of events and uh, uh, where they were forced to be together and understand each other and appreciate uh, the dilemma that was uh, the challenge that was ahead uh, and that they're, prides and reputations were on the line as well that uh, they just kind of galvanized and there were other little events that happened that helped the cause too and you know they joke about it a little bit but all the steaks and the and the beer that they had flown over a lot of it started to disappear the hotel staff were stealing and all the rest and and the and they wouldn't allow they didn't have enough food for the wives to or, or the canadian food for the wives to to share in and uh Having been there in 86 myself for the world championships before the, the curtain came down and they got uh, different types of restaurants, the food could be challenging for a visitor. And uh, so his, I think it was Brad Parker, Rod Sealing said, he said, you know, our wives were, were not very happy. And he says, uh, you know, one valuable lesson is if you, you piss off a Canadian hockey player's wife, then you're pissing, <laughs> off, you're pissing off the player too. So look out. 
<laughs> I also wondered, Scott, how, how did the relationship and the way the Canadian and Russian, I guess, alumni from these teams, like the way they share this experience, how did that, how has that evolved over, over the decades? Well, they're friends now. Uh, and there's this great respect. I mean, they hated each other during that series uh, for a lot of good reasons. There was some nasty hockey out there. And then, as we said, as we talked about, rather, the, the stakes were so high and the pressure was so high and the drama and then ultimately how it unfolded with a bitter loss for one team and a great win for the other. And so there wasn't a lot of love for, for many years, but there was a grudging respect that came out of it for sure. Uh, but it wasn't until many years later and it was they were on a kind of an alumni tour where they're playing some exhibition games in 1987. And um, they just decided the players, they'd seen the Soviet sort of uh, the entourage, the people who are sort of managing these, this old timer, this old 72 old timers, just giving them a hard time. And our guys thought, this is just crazy, man. And they had a better understanding of some of the pressures those players were under in their system and uh, how kind of mentally and otherwise abused they were uh, by coaches and whatnot. And so anyway, they just said, when we get back to the hotel, you're jumping on our bus and our bus is going to go out for a night of fun. And <laughs> they're in Ottawa at the time playing. And uh, so after the game, they got rid of all the, the brass from the Soviet group. Uh, and then the players jumped on and they they drove across the, the river to, uh, to Hall, Quebec, as it was called. And uh, they went into, we'll call it a dancing emporium. And... Uh, <laughs> They drank, the a lot of, they drank a lot of beer and undoubtedly vodka, and the Canadians picked up the tab, and that was the night they found detente. Uh, they just uh, they came together as, as pals, and it's, there's been a strong bond ever since with uh, the Soviets invite our guys over for, uh, for the various reunions and anniversary celebrations. And it's interesting because as mad as the players, the Soviet players still are about losing and, and disappointed and angry about it, but they, you know, acknowledge the obviously respect for the Canadians, but they still celebrate the series over there in, in as many ways as a win because they did prove to the world that they were as good as our guys. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that certainly is the takeaway for, for, for the Soviets. And then the answer to the question when people say, you know, why are, why are they, um, you know, celebrating there in a supposed loss? Um, um, yeah, that was uh, that was, was that new information for this book because uh, I I really liked that part where you talked about Brad Park uh, going over to Viktor Tikhonov who was uh, kind of giving a hard time to one of the Soviet players about maybe having a couple of beers after one of those games in '87 and he said no you you know he went over to Viktor Tikhonov and said you don't you know you don't do that here yeah yeah no that all the, those stories about how they came together are all were all new for me right. Um, so you, you talk, you said, uh, we're, as we wrap up here, you talked about detente and I, I just wanted to expound on that in the sense of, uh, or get you to, um, you know, given what's going on right now with, you know, Russia and the way they are perceived in international sport, um, you know, especially Olympic sport, could this, uh, example of detente between, uh, Canada and the Soviets in 72, um, could that be built on going forward uh, or does it kind of stand alone um, in the sense of, you know, can we, can we use this as a building block going forward in the way they've come together? Well, I think uh, 
I think we have in many ways, if, if looking at it strictly from a hockey perspective, is that, you know, as we talked about, you know, Russian players blend into the league like anybody else. Nobody's offended uh, when one of them wins the Norris or the Hart or anything become Lidstrom's the first to win the mm-hmm. you know, race, the Stanley Cup for a European player, anything like that. So we've we've learned to appreciate them and they're they're part of our game now and and, and and all of that. And when it becomes international, then yeah, you don't like them because you're playing for that, you know, maple leaf on your, on your chest. And mm. I don't know how much the, you know, what's happening in the world today uh, is going to impact relations, obviously between Russian players and NHL players so far, you know, obviously nobody's been uh, banned from playing and there doesn't seem to be any divides that are not- noticeable to any of us from afar on teams or between teams with players. So, um, you know, hopefully everybody can continue on and that everybody has the understanding of what's right and wrong in the world. Final, uh, final couple of questions here. Um, and I'll give Nate a chance to jump in in a, in a second if he has any follow-ups, but basically, um, and thank you by the way, for giving us this much time. Um, we can, we can't end, uh, the podcast without ending, uh, with the man that, ended the series essentially uh the hero of the series which is paul henderson um who of course nate you may remember from our hometown of kingston having a a restaurant called paul henderson's winning goal oh Uh, yes (laughs) um so um you know he i had a chance to talk to him um about a year ago and or two years ago and um he he talked about after you know after this series i mean this changed him uh, you know, this, this series changed him negatively in a sense, right? The expectations for him just went through the roof. I mean, he was, you know, what kind of player was Paul Henderson on this team? I think he was on the third line. And how do you, how did you see his career uh, after this series uh, unfold in the NHL? Well, Paul was a real good player and he was a, a very good player before that series. And uh, you think about to, to be on the guest list, to be a part of that team, and then to, even though there were 35 players in the beginning, <clears throat> you had to still still be really good to be invited to camp. And then to be, you know, to play all eight games to make that opening night roster and stay uh, in every game throughout the series, you had to be outstanding. And and he was in that line with Ellis and, and Bobby Clark. It was the only line that stayed together the entire series. And uh, so when he comes home, and I'm sure Paul talked about it, is that, you know, he's obviously coming home as a hero, scoring that winning goal in game eight, but also the two previous games and all would have had the winning goal in game five had they hung on to the lead then. So he had a tremendous series. He scores the goal that, you know, saves the day for Canada, allows us to stick our chest out and, and say we're number one. And even though it didn't evolve the way everybody had hoped or expected, they still found a way to do it. And so uh, then everybody's expecting him to be a hero every day. Everybody wants a piece of him, first of all. Everybody wants to see him and be him and be around him. And then every time he plays, they expect him to be a hero. And he has to be the best player and score the winning goal every night. And there's just immense pressures there on so many levels. And, I, you know, Paul talks about it. It, it did impact his life for, for many years. And he was... Uh, you know, obviously through his faith, he was able to find his way and, uh, and have a great life. And uh, but it was a challenge for him, for sure. 
It's interesting too, because um, he said that uh, on the way home uh, from Russia, uh, Alan Eagleson told him that goal will be worth a million dollars. And he said, I laughed at the time, but it's been worth a lot more than that to me. So yeah, it seems like a neg- it might have negatively impacted his career. Financially, it may have may have set him up too. So, um, of course. Well, guys, and, yeah, and I ahead. think when he says it was worth much, much more, I mean, I'm sure he made good money out of it. And he got a ultimately got a good contract from the WHA that mm-hmm. uh, paid him well, and I'm sure he's made appearance monies and all that. But I think it's just that he was able to get his life figured out right. under those pressures, uh, and then carry on and have a, a life and be able to share his story and his message and inspire people. I think that's what makes Paul really happiest. Nate, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to ask Scott, uh, so where were you in 72 when Paul Henderson scored the goal? Well, I was uh, just a few weeks ahead of my uh, 14th birthday, but uh, I'd like to say that I told my parents, but I probably asked uh, that they allowed me to stay home for the final three games of the series. <laughs> I mean, the schools were allowing kids to have transistor radios in their pockets with the earplugs. And they obviously, you know, they were wheeling TVs into the gymnasiums and some classrooms and all that. And I said, no, no, I, I got to watch this up close. <laughs> so they let me stay home for those. Uh, one of the games was on a Sunday for Moscow. The other three were on weekdays. So I, I stayed home for those and uh, was eternally grateful for it. <laughs> nice. Scott, uh, sorry, Nate, did, uh, did you have a no, follow-up? No, no, okay, I, so so I guess, Scott, my, my closing question to you um, is, in uh, you, you did a book with Rick Vive, who we also had on the podcast um, not too long ago. And um, in the acknowledgments, you, you wrote, you know, you, you used a, a, a quote from uh, a poet and novelist, Ben Oakery, um, to kind of summarize your feelings of the book. Um, is there something that, is there a, a quote or, or um, from a poem or just anything that, that kind of sums up what you think now about this series? Uh, there's a quote and I, 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 I used it in the book. I'm pretty sure it was John Ferguson Jr. And John, uh, you know, after his dad got sick and then sadly passed, John was invited to be part of some of the the tours that the players were on because he was obviously privy to a lot of the stories of his father and want everybody wanted to keep the Ferguson name uh, a part of when they were being honored and, and celebrated. And John had, had had watched the series and he'd watched a World Junior and our juniors battle back to win. Uh, and it was, you know, you could strike a, a parallel to 72 or even 87 when they had the battles there. And he just said, you can't teach Canadian. <laughs> and when I think of that and how we play the game and how, and one of the things the Soviets said is just that they were just, when it was all over and they dissected it, it's just that they said the battle and the Canadians that the, the, the never give up until the final buzzer how they just kept coming and coming and coming. And at times they didn't expect that because they'd never seen it quite like that before. And I just thought, yeah, you, you can't teach Canadian. Well, on that <laughs> note, uh, um, Scott, uh, I just want to ask you, um, what, uh, what's your next uh, project? What are you working on uh, going forward? And how has, uh, you know, what, what uh, going into September when the 50th anniversary happens, what's going on with this, uh, 
with this project for you? Do you have uh, obviously more press lined up and anything else uh, that you'll be doing uh, now that we can see people in person? <laughs> well, I, I hope that uh, you know we honor that team uh, in the best way possible and, and celebrate them uh, in a grand way. And I'm, I'm confident it will happen from a book, the book perspective. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that we'll be doing a lot of media then and hopefully appearances. And uh, I'd like to, uh, uh, having worked with the 72 group, uh, I'd like to be a part of some of those uh, or be at some of those celebrations and help out in any way that I can from, you know, moderating or sharing some of the stories to get uh, the players going with the conversation. and. Uh, Otherwise, from a book perspective, I'm uh, working with one with uh, Doug McLean now, which is not entirely like Doug's story per se, but a lot of Doug's stories from hockey. And mm. it's got a kind of a, a draft background to it of how to team, how teams have been built and backstories to how they were built and or misses in some cases. So a lot of good hockey stories there. And, uh, and then I've got a book with Mike Keenan, uh, his story on, on the horizon as well. Well, hopefully uh, you'd be willing to come back and join us again uh, as a repeat guest. Um, thank you uh, for your time today and congratulations on the book. I know both myself and Nate really enjoyed reading it. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's been fun. Mm-hmm.